ha. Welcome. Welcome to Halloween Hangover. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Once again, it's that time of year when ghosts, ghouls, and goblins are on the prowl. That's right, it's Halloween. Or, if we're getting technical, it's the day after Halloween. As much as Devika and I are scared to admit it, that also means it's time for yet another episode of our Halloween Hangover feature, where we confront one of our greatest fears, horror movies, with the help of some masters of the macabre. This year, we asked Kelly Weston, who literally holds a PhD in horror cinema, and Stephen Mears, a critic and Film Comment's famously nocturnal copy editor, to inflict two movies of their choice upon us. Kelly chose the 1976 slasher movie, Alice Sweet Alice, and Steve picked Jack Clayton's Henry James adaptation, The Innocents. Both movies were ultimately more goofy than scary, but they yielded a truly rich conversation about the role of religion, class, children, and more in horror. We hope you enjoy this spine-tingling conversation. Today, we are going to do our second annual Halloween Hangover episode where we invite two horrifying, or rather, sorry, horror-steeped, I should say, that's a little bit nicer, horror-steeped uh, colleagues to to scare Devika and myself, basically. We want them to, because the, the fact is neither of us, the hosts here, willingly watch a lot of horror movies. We're both easily scared. We're and wimps. We are wimps, yeah. Basically, we are wimps. wimps. Yeah. And so I've found more more though that I like I like it when people like assign stuff and then I have to watch them and then I always enjoy the films. And so we invited two eminent experts in the field of horror to join us today. Um Kelly, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Kelly Weston. I'm a critic and programmer. Um, I love horror films. I have a PhD. I specialize in, in horror cinema. I have been saying this a lot when I introduce myself because uh, I've been talking um, a lot about horror this season, um, coincidentally. Yeah, I um, why. That, yeah, it's so weird that, bizarrely, um, but that, you know, it was like one of my first uh entries into film so as a kid I was watching like Disney films and then uh like Friday the 13th and <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street so mm, I explains have... a lot as a kid did, did you ever see a return to Witch Mountain is that the really scary Disney yes. movie yes that really yeah that was With the me. yeah no 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 later or much earlier much earlier I think I've seen, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've definitely seen it. I was, you know, I'm a kid of the 90s, so and I'm only child. So I was doing a lot of, you know, watching like the animated films um, because 
that's what my mom thought was appropriate, but her, she has a lot of sisters. And uh, weirdly enough, they are very uh, interested in horror films. Like I was thinking about this the other day, like the first time I watched The Sixth Sense was like at a barbecue. Like we had a family barbecue <laughs> and then everybody sort of migrated to the living room. My aunt lived in this huge house and we watched The Sixth Sense just like, they, they really did. I, I don't know what was going through their heads. Like there was a bunch of children there, but anyway, those are my credentials. <laughs> so Kelly, um, would you say that you are Dr. Horror? Could we call you <laughs> Dr. Horror? I mean, I haven't thought of it that way, but I love it. I would love for us to continue uh, on this trend. On this, okay. Anybody could, uh, you know, henceforth address me thus. Okay. I think Dr. Spooky. Dr. Spooky <laughs> would be better. Just <laughs> suggesting. You can, choose, you can choose your own title here, but... And our other guest today is Film Comments fact checker, copy editor. Long time, long, long time, time copy editor, writer, very long comment person, broadly put. <laughs> Steve, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Steve Mears. I'm a contributing writer and copy editor for Film Comment, um, as well as for Field Notes and Bloodvine. Um, I'm not, I, I appreciate the compliment, but I'm not. Um, I'm not a master of horror. I'm certainly not a doctor of horror, maybe a bachelor of horror. Um, I, I, it's kind of a blind spot. Maybe like a, a registered nurse of horror. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a yeah, paralegal of horror. At least horror. you're not a patient of horror like Clinton yeah. myself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my one, I guess, recent qualification is that I've, I, I've, I've taken on um, the role of copy editor for Bloodvine, which is a wonderful new horror site by my friend mm -hmm. Laura Kern. And uh, any horror mavens would do well to bookmark it because it has some of the best writing um, on horror and adjacent genres out there. So that's that's given me a lot of good tips, um, a lot of good steers, and I've discovered some films that I'd never heard of before. But, uh, you know, like for this um, summit meeting, I had only seen the film that I assigned. So it's all very informative. Well, I'm cool. glad we can I'm glad we can provide you with some kind of, you know, an education in horror, as it were. <laughs> I, I I will say we're calling this Halloween hangover because by the time this gets to listeners' ears, it will be post-Halloween. But actually we are pre-gaming because we're this is being recorded before Halloween. So before we get into the movies, what are y'all's costumes? I'm, I don't dress up for Halloween. Oh my gosh! Clint, you can tell us what, what your what your baby costume is. Baby's costume is. Yeah. My daughter's gonna dress up as like a kitty cat, as she says. It's not, but black cat. Yeah, yeah. The best ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kelly. That's it. Oh my gosh! I think I'm gonna be um, the one black witch from the Netflix show Sabrina, which I've never watched. But I had added this actress to I'm a dork, so I have a Pinterest board. So I added her to my Pinterest board because she has these finger waves that I think are really great. And I still haven't nailed the finger waves, but I was looking for last minute Halloween costumes, and I figured I would do that because I have a black dress and a collar. So that's what I'm gonna be. Cool. Steve? Well, I, uh, I shouldn't probably admit this on the air, but I take my dog trick-or-treating every year. Uh, I take him door-to-door. -door. 
which is a way uh, to enjoy Halloween well into your 30s without anyone calling the police. Uh, <laughs> so, so we go door to door and every year I dress him up as something. This year he's going to be Rocky. So he's got the uh -huh. boxing gloves. It, it's the, the costume is engineered so that his front paws go in the, the, the little openings for the feet. So it looks like he's standing up and his gloves All are right, extended. Right but the gloves are actually stuffed. It's a wonderful, uh, it's a marvel of modern engineering. And I'm gonna be Burgess Meredith, so I'll have the whistle and the cap and the, you know. Oh, love this. I have to follow you both on Instagram so I can see these photos, because I think <laughs> it's important to share. The dark well, times, so. Truly, and, truly. And finally? Look, I did not think too much about costumes this year. I didn't order anything. I have a few ideas. But after watching the movies assigned for this podcast, I was thinking maybe I should be Alice or the murder and sweet Alice. Uh, Alice oh, that'd be, sweet yeah. Alice. That'd be yeah. really scary. I yeah. know. Yeah. Like, get a mask. And pretty um, easy to put together. You just need a yellow exactly. raincoat and a transparent yeah, that mask. The, that mask, though, is really... Not going to be super easy to come by, right? Can you just get those anywhere? I think I can Amazon. make it. You can go to oh, Pat yeah, yeah. go to Patterson, New Jersey, and pick one up at a Catholic <laughs> school. That's sure true. They seem to have quite a few lying around. As someone also who's like spent time in New Jersey, what a you know, not to I don't want to like offend New Jersey people, but it can be like a very strange suburban space. Like it is like a little bit. I just say this: my family lives out in New Jersey, so I feel like I can say this. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> We're a known anti-New Jersey podcast. Yeah. Nobody's gonna, it's 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 too Speak late. That ship is sailed. Um, but am I actually dressing as Alice Sweet Alice or did I just engineer a segue into the first movie? We'll never know. Uh, I think <laughs> probably um, the latter. It was. Anyway, Kelly, you picked this movie for us. And I think one of the reasons you picked it for us was that Clint and I were like, no gore. We cannot look at gore. And you were like, well, I, yeah. I, you were trying to figure out what, you know, would be. <laughs> horror but like wouldn't scare us so tell us a little bit well, about the, just to be clear though the rule is not no gore the rule is just like no like torture porn gore yeah but you were saying the you you were just like no texas chainsaw massacre yeah, yeah, yeah. which is very i mean comparatively given the things that are out today i think not very gory i would say but uh, all Maybe right. people disagree. No. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, again, my tolerance is off. We all have different experiences of the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I will say my barometer is very off. As I said, I grew up in a very strange environment where they New were Jersey. showing children. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, South Carolina. So oh, okay. maybe even a little bit worse. Um, uh, so yeah, I picked Alice Sweet Alice for several reasons. Like you said, you guys were like, no gore. And I wanted to try and pick what I felt was like a very safe option. But also this film is kind of like um, the zenith of my <laughs> of foremost interest. Like I, uh, I am just sort of predisposed to really um, relating to this film. It's a film that's very deeply about Catholicism, about children. I think it's also an interesting one to think about because um, 
a lot of people, and by a lot of people, I generally mean myself, I am very opposed to creepy children um, and very easily set against them, even if the child is like not the villain. Of the like, of the omen or the bad seed variety, yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah, but even just regular creepy children, like there is, I was recommending- Like on um, the street. Right, any child actually. <laughs> Um, I was recommending a film uh, from, again, from my childhood, this film called Stir of Echoes, uh, which stars the wonderful Kevin Bacon. uh, And it's a ghost story. And it's not, the kid is just like, he doesn't do anything. It's not really about the child at all. There's just a ghost haunting the house. But this child is like one of the like most unsettling children. And I just wanted him out of there. (laughs) And so I thought this would be a good one to talk about, you know, uh, your children are like inevitably like a really vulnerable class and I think they end up um you know uh, revealing a, a a lot about the environment that they they grow up in uh particularly in horror films they're often like an entryway for evil or otherworldliness to sort of enter the story um and it, and and the, and it's you know it's like I I, I'm saying this only half jokingly right um, about, you know, hating eerie children. Um, but I do think that, you know, just generally the way that we think about kids in society is very strange and arguably, you know, I don't know if we can curse on this podcast, but just a little bit fucked up. And so films like this are always, okay, <laughs> perfect. It's, it's, it's awful the way people think about children as, as possessions, ultimately. So we'll maybe get into that a little bit more because Stephen's also chosen The Innocence. But um, I don't know. I think this film is an interesting one because I think uh, even the film itself has like kind of strange, ambivalent, really complicated feelings about the children at the center of it. Tell us, Steve, what happens in Alice, Sweet Alice? Oh. Um... I don't have to say it like that. <laughs> Um, Alice, Sweet Alice is about uh, two sisters in Patterson, New Jersey, and uh, the younger of the two is preparing for her, her first communion. Played by uh, Brooke Shields, is, I think, in like her first ever role. In her film debut. She's about 11, I think. So, um, and, and she's not in it very much, spoiler alert, uh, because she does not, <laughs> um, because, well, the first, the first 10 minutes uh, kind of give us uh, a, a very kind of biting portrait of uh, suburban sibling rivalry. And uh, the older sister is very jealous because Karen, who's Brooke Shields' character, gets everything she wants. And there's, there's also kind of a Jan and Marsha Brady vibe about it, the way mm-hmm. she's, you know, kind of like, like, what do you care what I do? I'm not Karen. And then Karen is brutally murdered at her first communion. Um, so, you know, if you... It sort of fails the no blood <laughs> test. Uh, and then the rest of the film is about uh, discovering the identity of the murderer who, you know, the film, I take it, was inspired by Don't Look Now. The, mm-hmm. the killer uh, is clothed in a raincoat and a mask. Um, and uh, you know, there are a number of likely suspects. One of them is the sister, Alice, sweet Alice. Uh, but the backdrop for the film is the Catholic Church and uh, mm. a very staunchly religious community, uh, but one where religion doesn't afford anyone any solace. Um, it's it's kind of true. I mean, Kelly, you, you'd be in a better position to speak to that, but I'm not 
uh, I'm not seeing religion as any kind of a, um, um, as, as anything that brings peace or comfort to these characters. It's actually the, the motive behind the killings. And I think that's what sets it apart from some of these other films from the 70s zeitgeist of Catholic horror hmm. is that it's not, uh, it offers no defense against them either. There's no, you know, team of priests that comes in to restore order to the universe. Um, you know, there's no, um, e even though the the, uh, the lead actress is played by uh, the wife of Jason Miller, who played the priest in The Exorcist, there's no exorcist that's going to sort out this mess. Um, and uh, I've probably provided all the context you need and more. This wasn't very gory or scary, so thank you, Kelly. I think it was like more ridiculous. You know, it had it has that retro vibe and the killings. It, there's a kind of tropiness to it. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess I can spoil it. There's a movie from 1978, but you know, the maid did it. I mean, the mm -hmm. uh, the immigrant maid with the accent did it. It's just so cliche, but I also mm -hmm. found it actually like interestingly weird um even though it follows certain predictable templates and feels very goofy at times and some of the weird aspects that i found intriguing included you know this the mother of the two girls is divorced apparently she had alice out of wedlock and that's uh, some of the prejudice that people seem to have against Alice like uh, the mother's sister Annie seems to have a prejudice against Alice because I think she thinks that she's like some kind of satanic child because mm -hmm. she was conceived before marriage um, and I don't know but there's also some weird sexual tension between the mother and the priest I don't know if I was reading yeah. into that but in the beginning of the movie I don't know Catholic traditions very well, but I don't know why they would go to this priest's house and why he would give a present to this child and then say, who else would I give it to? Well, how about like the all the other girls in town? <laughs> like, why this girl? And so I thought that was interesting that it was just interesting that there's Father Tom and the actual Father Dom who actually kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say they team up, but they're both, you know, searching for the killer and they both seem to have some faith that Alice is not the killer um so that was an interesting like not fully necessarily explored like it was almost like a subtextual theme and then the film is kind of a little bit a commentary also on the institutional institutionalization of children and pathologizing children difficult children uh, because Alice actually gets sent to this home and you have all these creepy, this creepy psychiatrist, uh, you know, who's given a very kind of gothic vibe. That place is given a gothic vibe. And everybody so believes that Alice, Alice is the murderer from uh, almost immediately, including the police mm -hmm. think that this like mm -hmm. 12, 13 year old girl, 11 year old girl, right? I think she is. In yeah, the she's like yeah. 12 or something. What I will say is to, in regards to what Adamica was first pointing out, um, even though I also felt like that I was like this priest is a little too close to them and the first time I watched it I do think I expected there to be some sort of reveal that the priest and the mother had had a relationship but I think the truth or what we're just generally meant to um get from it because this film came out in 1976 so 
don't hold me to to this date, but I'm pretty sure this is like post Vatican II. And so this is when like, for like my, my mother is like a convert and my dad's family was Catholic. Um, and so for them, like it's John, I think it's John Paul II, who was like this very revered Pope who sort of ushered in this more, and you, I think it's also um, at least brought up in the film Doubt as well, um, that he was trying to usher in this, you know, warmer, more family friendly institution. It's really funny that Stephen was like, oh, well, this religion doesn't offer for anybody any solace and I don't think any Catholic would say that about <laughs> their religion is a deeply uncomfortable um I I would say anywhere for me it was like deeply uncomfortable it's filled with a lot of guilt I think you notice whether or not you're a continuing a continually practicing Catholic or not that the way that you're you know that that guilt sort of seeps into other areas of your life that um you know i noticed that too about if i'm to pathologize myself like um there there's an ongoing relationship between uh your your sense of uh, morality or your sense of um of conflict or, or doing something wrong and punishment um but yeah i think like in general like one of the things that is happening in in the film too is that there is this um, this uh, correlation between the way the church is trying to replicate a family structure and has always tried to do that. I mean, you call the priest father, their sisters, um, you know, and how it also replicates this home that is also, you know, deeply patriarchal and very lopsided, except that Alice's home is this kind of, you know, what was already being pathologized and certainly uh for sure in, in, in racialized family in black families and i think we're also meant to get the impression that this family is italian although i'm not sure about that um but that you know the uh, a family that is like you know a single parent home is somehow um you know a breeding ground or really fertile for uh, you know, crime or conflict or all sort of, you know, all manner of, of, of toxicities or, you know, Evil. reprehensible yeah. behavior. Exactly. Yeah. A yeah. fatherless so, home is like the worst right. environment exactly. for a child. And then yeah. it, it is strange, but too, because I mean, it's not strange, but you know, the mother is divorced, the father has remarried. They're, I believe, still at the time like even though you could do this like it, it was still very tricky to get remarried in the catholic church after you've been divorced um so there are all of these really um murky implications about the family structure and and what it actually reads when it i guess doesn't look conventional or um the way western ideals sort of conceptualize the family home and i think it is quite interesting that the character the actress whose name i can't remember who plays alice she's actually 19 the actress was 19 when she played the role paula shepherd i believe is her name is that correct yes um but it's it's very um interesting that she herself is this very morally complex character right she's not like a very poor innocent like she is kind right. of wicked she's kind of like a bad kid kind of she's a brat she yeah. gets into trouble and she plays with cockroaches in the basement i mean she's weird yeah. yeah, but she's also like <laughs> capable of kind of looking out for herself. She's she's like persistently harassed by this extremely creepy landlord who lives mm. in the apartment below them. Oh, the fat phobia, though. It's very fat phobic. But the fat you know, phobia. Oh. Yeah, the portrayal of that guy is really is really uh, 
something else. Very off-putting, yeah. But she kind of like is able to deflect him in in a way that's pretty savvy, I think, for somebody. And so you see her kind of, yeah, she's a kid, but she's also kind of growing up. Obviously, I think she, I think it's revealed at one point that she's gotten her period, but she didn't tell her mom. Also perceived to be mm-hmm. like a great, like a sign of some sort of pathology that she didn't reveal that, like her relationship with her mother is not close enough to where that her mother would know about this, even though this kid has been accused of murder by like everybody around her like why would she say anything about anything to anyone yeah there's clear there's like a clear disconnect between her and her mother but also the way that she um because she's so hyper sexualized in the film as oh well. also very I mean, strange there's, yeah there's that moment with the yeah, police super yeah. creepy yeah. yeah it's so gross and and i you know, you have to think that this is just obviously um, very contemporaneous, right? That like everybody around this little girl ha- ha- is sort of projecting. I mean, actually, it's not even it's it's a thing that continues to happen, but they're projecting sexuality onto this kid who is admittedly, like Devika is saying, like she's a very bizarre child. Like she is definitely weird, um, but people uh, automatically suspect her of murder even because they, you know, they know that she's jealous of her little sister. But it does feel like a great leap, doesn't it? It's just like- right. Well, you have the two you know, detectives just going like, yep, had to be the, tw- had to be the also, 11 year old. How a 12, a 12 year old, like strangling someone requires a lot of strength. And I'm just like, Absolutely. a 12 year old girl could not actually strangle a person so quickly. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a forensics expert, but it's, <laughs> the leaps are huge. Their backup suspect is the other 12 year old girl, like her cousin. Yeah. Remember? And they're yeah. like, <laughs> instead of, instead of considering any of the number of adults, adults who could have committed this crime, they're immediately like, well, maybe if it wasn't Alice, it, it had, had to be, be the other 12 year old girl. No, I think that it's. I think that uh yeah it's it's really strange but it also kind of plays out as this persecution of Alice throughout and the, as the movie goes on you kind of see these like the family dynamic kind of unfolds and mm. play and uh different threads of the of that family are kind of tugged at and it unravels to a certain extent the dad becomes comes back into their lives in order to save Alice mm-hmm. and and is like super chill about it i thought i thought given the situation where his daughter had been brutally murdered and he's just like well you know i'm gonna try to get to the bottom of this i think (laughs) they actually they both are but i mean i just took that as like movie movie movie. delusions but i did in response to what you were just saying kelly like this context around you know these catholic tropes and maybe even biases that the movie is sort of bringing to the fore about a single family household and divorce and all of that it is interesting that the mother and father all through the you know all the way to the end are really up are presented as upstanding folks at the end of the day they're the ones who defend their child you know refuse to just take the word of the authorities um the father I mean, ultimately, you know, gives up his life trying to trying to rescue her. Um, and they're just presented as like kind of good people. And, you know, they, they have this indiscretion. You know, he's remarried, but he has this tryst with the mother because they're kind of together in this moment. And instead of making it into a big scandal, there's a kind of surprising and kind of touching 
I think humanity lent to them and their this moment of confusion they're in, which I I don't know what to, you know, kind of make of that exactly. But even though they're he's remarried, she's divorced, and they kind of are are not behaving very appropriately within those bounds, uh, they're shown to be really good people and good parents. Yeah. And I mean, it's a moment of grieving as well, right? Like there's a clearly there. One thing that I was sort of put off by was the new wife being like, why aren't you home? And it's right. like, his child is dead. His child Tell has me been you murdered. love me. Like, <laughs> right. <Man? laughs> exactly. We're in a crisis. Like, it's like it, but I do think like, you know, that feels to me also slightly, um, uh, significantly influenced by a lot of giallo films. I mean, the film is is clearly, you know, borrowing from not just uh, Don't Look Now, but but from those, you know, um, late 60s, um, uh, all throughout the 70s, Italian horror films. And that too is a kind of recurring trope where, you know, ordinary men will kind of just start, just be an investigator. Like <laughs> they're just like, they're all of a sudden they're just spurred into action by this thing that has happened to them. Um, but I also think like it, it too, it really reveals something about the nature of, of, um, of the way at least then, and, and certainly there, there's a lingering influence, but, um, the way uh, heterosexual relationships are sort of meant to be legitimized by the church. Like they say that they were really young and you get the impression that, you know, she got pregnant by accident and they just decided to get married as opposed to, you know, allowing these people to, you know, maybe figure out whether or not they actually wanted to be together. I mean, there's also, you get the, since because of the way the Catholic Church is also about contraception that you know a lot of these things are just sort of wrapped up in the teachings and the ideals of the church that you know these people's lives have been um wrote like you know mapped in a certain way or directed in a certain way because of these beliefs which they still ultimately at the end of the day cling to because you know while they have I think an appropriately antagonistic relationship with the police and I love that I love that people are treating the police <laughs> in this way because it's like we're saying like why are you looking at children when I think like uh, to me it's like they're priests around you it would have bishops um, why not a nun? There's so many <laughs> other viable suspects. The yeah, the police are totally incompetent in this movie. They're Absolutely. also just portrayed as just like jerks who are, who like can't do anything right, including the end. It's like, what yes. are they doing? They're, you're like, they're, yeah, ineffectual. So totally ineffectual. But they, while they have a really you know hostile relationship with police who are trying to lock up their other daughter, they maintain, I think, very close relationships with the people in the church who you know arguably also not even arguably definitely are literally killing them equally, all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> represent equally um you know restraining oppressive volatile forces in their lives i mean you think about like the way that the mother is constantly just going over to the father's house and sort of you know their relationship is so um you know close and, and fraternal that you have to think like you know he he i mean in another story like he would be the prime suspect Right. And I mean, so when the movie began, I was like, it's got to be the priest. Right. Um, but can we, mm. can we 
talking. Steve, I, I want to uh, hear your, your take on this too. Well, I, I, I was hoping that Kelly could maybe um, talk about how this fits into the uh, 70s uh, boom of religious-themed horror films and also kind of where it departs from it. I mean, it's a really interesting question because to me, and I have to be very, very careful here because obviously the church is uh, an incredibly, um, and has been, you know, in, not just here, but in, in many nations, like an incredibly insidious force and institution. But the way that Catholicism would often operate in a lot of horror films um, for obvious reasons as a, is a kind of ethnic group as an almost ethnic technology. I mean, you think about like all of the times that, you know, these people who are these groups who are like not Catholic or, you know, presumably just like random groups of people who need something exercise, they will go to a priest despite not being Catholic at all. And this is the way that religion often works. I mean, there, there are real parallels. And again, this is why I want to be very careful, but there, I've noticed that there are certain parallels between the way that something like Catholic um, beliefs and rituals operate uh, to um, the way that voodoo also operates and the way that, you know, these are institutions that are kind of othered because for the most part, you know, in the United States, Catholicism is a kind of, you know, and I'm saying some air quotes, like othered religion, you know, it's the religion of people who are immigrants who carry this from, you know, they're not Protestant, they're not wasps. Um, and I think this film really also, depart I mean, I think you brought it up and, and said it quite precisely earlier. This film really departs from, from a lot of, of those pictures, a lot of its peers in the sense that it is deeply uh, anti-Catholic. It is, it is not, you know, in any way, it doesn't um, present this religion as, um, you know, a safe space space as a haven. Um, it is the space where these children are, you know, preyed upon, where they're killed. And it is interesting too that, you know, I want to, maybe we shouldn't be careful about spoilers. I mean, don't listen to this. Skip five minutes ahead. No, we don't need to be careful. Come Spoil on. Away. Come on. I, I want to ask, yeah, and I do want to ask about the last shot at some point. I think it's like kind of. And I want to ask about the culprit. Like, yeah, you know, this what is what is, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, we have to talk about the fact that, like we were saying, we can't watch this from 2022 and not have those sort of thoughts about, you know, the priests and um, the way the church is sort of set up. And, you know, we're talking about a conflict between children and this institution. And actually, it's not the priest, but it's this older woman who is a maid who is herself sort of, you know, trapped and really lost in, um, in this institution. And I think, like, that to me is very fascinating because actually one of the ways that I think Catholicism really distinguishes itself from other, you know, Western Christian religions, or at least the way they're, they're practiced um, here, is that, you know, the Virgin Mary occupies a really complex and interesting space in the religion. She's not, you know, she's, she's so prominent in Catholic prayers and, and she's, a, she's a kind of emissary. She's a figure who can, you know, kind of intercede on your behalf is the way she sort of operates. And, but the thing is like, she is also deeply venerated in a way that women are not typically. And women do hold this position in the church. They can't be priests, um, but they have a, they are deeply in much the way 
I would argue, you know, most patriarchal um, family structures function. Women are incredibly um, integral to the operation of this, uh, and and also the upholders of it. Um, the woman and they're deified and idealized, but absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. It, those are the two, right? Like she is the woman who she um, is dressing up as Alice. She has a raincoat and the mask, and so you think that she is Alice, but she's other than the fact that she's much larger than Alice. Yeah, like physically, you see her walking around. In <laughs> but I think formally, the film, at least in the beginning, sort of plays with that. So you don't notice it until midway through, really, that these are obviously two different people. This is uh, Mrs. Tredoni is the name of this character, Mrs. Tredoni, and played by Mildred Clinton. I just have to say, like, it's very, she's made into a, this, I don't know, she's really othered. She's a caricature. She is. She yeah. is othered. But I'm very interested in that space where she and Alice sort of collide. Like, what is what are the connections that are being made between this older woman and this young child, and how you know easily they their positions are conflated, uh, and and how easily they're sort of you know the, the mask has a really significant I think um, you know thematic presence in the film. But you know what is that? How is how how are those gendered? Um, roles sort of colliding into each other is, I think, really fascinating. She does sort of. She just sort of is a background figure for much of the film. You think of her as like this person who's just kind of making dinner for the priest and cleaning the house, yeah, and holding everything to holding everything and together. Very and... dismissed by them, dismissed by him, dismissed right. by the um, Monsignor, the Archbishop. Yeah, 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 right. the Monsignor. Yeah, who's this like dithering old guy who she has to take care of who she's kind of but there but I think there's also that scene where she talks about her own backstory where you have some where you kind of sympathize with her you know or there's a there's she has a humanity that uh psycho killers don't often have you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter it's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comments editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. There's a very interesting scene where she goes to confession. And she's she's absolutely emphatic that the that the younger priests take her confession, even though it's not her turn. And then the things she wants to get off her chest are like um, she was impatient with the Monsignor. She uh, neglected her prayers. These are the transgressions that are eating away at her. Not the fact that she's by now committed multiple murders, but but she believes she's doing God's work. She really believes. I mean, the line that comes out of her have her confessional monologue about losing her own child on, on, on her daughter's first communion day um, is children pay for the sins of their parents. And that's deeply embedded in her and she believes it. And that's why she thinks that, um, you know, that the, this extramarital relations between the parents must be punished even 12 or 13 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it was punished on the day of the first communion of, of, uh, uh, Brooke Shields' character, right? That was the same as mm. the same as Miss Tredoni, right? Mrs. But Tredoni. the tra- yeah. but the transgression itself took place sure, with sure. Alice's conception, you know, because yeah. Karen, Karen was apparently conceived within wedlock, um, which is all very interesting. And yeah, I also kind of wonder, like, 
was was Alice denied confession? Which from the way she's she's jealous of, you know, Karen getting to wear the veil mm-hmm. and stuff. You wonder, didn't you just get to do this a year or two ago, or was it because? Communion, yeah, she mean. would have communion. already had her communion. She should have already. I, I, yo, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry if I'm mixing up the words. I'm, I'm, oh no, no. She, yes, yeah, so she should have already had her communion, and I mean, I should say, like, I actually can't remember this. I don't remember my catechism, so like, I hope I'm. I don't want to be spreading lies about the Catholic Church. Not that I should care, but I. <laughs> like it is like a very strange. Like that symbolism is very true right you know you're you're like you have the white veil and the white gown and it's all about like purity and innocence and um it is so like the catholic uh catholic rituals are are such a i guess productive space for where where horror can sort of take place because you know there is the belief in the blood and and um and you know eating the body and like all of these things are and and the and the way that the film ends too I think presents a really interesting um collision of all of those themes you know Mrs. Tredoni basically stabs the priest uh as he's meant to be giving her communion the Eucharist and so it's like yeah, I, to me, I find it like a, um, as much as it is kind of cartoonish, I mean, it's very cartoonish, especially Mrs. Tredoni, especially her murders. I mean, it's like very difficult to keep a straight face, I think, because she's so over the top. Um, but it is still, I think, incredibly rich thematically because you're you're increasingly asked to, to really think about how, um, all of these beliefs and and rituals have quite a part and it's not a supernatural film but um in a in a far more subtle um and almost insidious way have really permeated the lives of these people because Miss Stradoni herself is almost completely driven insane by the mere, you know, idea or, or implication that some sin of hers may have caused her child to have been killed on the day of her child's communion. Yeah. Um, I wonder if this is a good point to go to Steve's pick, because as you were saying, Kelly, there are actually interesting parallels, you know, children. Um, there's also I, the help. It just figures kind of prominently, which is mm-hmm. which is interesting. And but the big but, one is but, the children. The big one is the children. But, you know, this film is supernatural, right, mm-hmm. Steve? I mean, the innocence uh, is so ambiguous. Well, so. They, yeah, that's up in the air. Yeah. Tell us first, like, why you chose it and what your relationship is with the movie. Have we said the title yet? Did anybody? Oh, my gosh, didn't we? The Innocence. Not not to be confused with the other film, the Norwegian film that came out earlier this year by Eskel Vogt. This is the one from 1961 starring the great Deborah Carr at the peak of her powers. It's it's just one of my favorite films of all time. I think it's uh, it's the greatest thriller that I've ever seen that wasn't directed by Hitchcock or Polanski, which, you know, these are films that everybody knows. But this one, I, I'm, I'm surprised by how when I, you know, when I, when I pitch it to people, they've never heard of it, especially given its pedigree, because it was adapted from uh, Henry James's Turn of the Screw, a well-known story. Um, Truman Capote was one of the two screen, screenwriters, and uh, I have a lot to say about his contributions. Um, and it was directed by the great Jack Clayton, um, the lamentably underrated director. Um, 
I think everything I have to say in the way of analysis should follow the synopsis. So <laughs> right. let's hear what it's about. Um, I mean, I have to just echo Steve in saying that I love this film and uh, the novella I have, I think it's a, it's a rewarding text to think about much more so than to read, I would say. Um, and I think it's interesting that there is already a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of rumblings about whether or not it's supernatural because. Oh, I totally believed it, y'all. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that you believe in the ghost. It's interesting because I think on this viewing and I haven't seen it for a couple of years like more than ever I was struck by the fact that I think Deborah Carr is just insane like driven insane right. by her own <laughs> but the synopsis is essentially that this young governess very innocent um, hasn't ever had a job before um, is sent by this rich man to look after his niece and nephew in the countryside and he doesn't really want to be bothered with them and he actually just like doesn't care he's just like listen go you get this amount of money, please don't bother me. <laughs> don't ask I'm me blocking you on my phone. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Which should be a sweet gig, but she's basically there with um, a, I think she's just like a maid, Mrs. Gross. Um, and for a little while, just the little girl, the little boy is away at school. And then Flora. interestingly enough, the film, yeah, Flora's a little girl. And then Miles, her brother is, you know, at a boarding school because he's a boy. And um, he gets sent uh, or expelled abruptly. Um, in the novella, I remember vividly what they say is that he was whispering things to the other little boys. And you're like, what was he whispering that got him expelled? Expelled. Yeah, in the movie, they say that he did them injury or that he, it's very, it's Corruption, very wasn't there something can, about? Yeah, I mean, we will get more into this because the 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 way that the, Obviously, this is like a Victorian novel, and, and one of the predominant themes is sexual repression. And if you don't believe that the governess is, you know, insane, you have to think it is her discovering. Um, in the way that I think all horrors are kind of fundamentally mysteries, the ghost story in particular is always going to be like a very, you know, it, it is very much premised on, you know, what has happened, like what is the historical thing that has taken place. Um, this woman discovers that the governess before her had a sexual relationship with the butler or the valet. The valet. And, yeah. yeah. And that, you know. Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, I think, are the names of those characters. Yes. Yeah. And their relationship was so sexual, so overt, and also so transgressive because there's class difference. It's adulterous, or it's not mm -hmm. adulterous, but it's like. Um, Abusive, I think. But there is a comment where it's like, sh why would an educated woman like her, what would she see in this brute of a man or something? Yeah, Who drank it's heavily so and was violent and... Uh, but, yeah, I yeah. mean, and, and that it's just, you know, the there is like you know, the sense that, you know, just the mere... Um, knowing of this just the just the idea the knowledge of it sends her into this great spiral right right um and so you have that and then you also have to think well these children are so you know are the children you know experiencing some sort of sexual trauma from being exposed to this mm. um or is there is also you know quite famously the implication that there is you know active like sexual abuse um and 
and the way that mm. Miles treats the governess that in the film he kisses her but the thing that's happening in the novella is that she is this is very murky too right her relationship with the boy because she's so obsessed and hyper fixated mm -hmm. on him you get the sense that like is she like weirdly in love with this little kid but she has the impression that he's speaking to her like a man because of things that he's learned from Peter Quint and yeah. she also believes that he's possessed by Peter Quint which yeah. further like complicate like she's fascinated by this brute this like the sexuality of Peter Quint and sort of mm -hmm. projecting it into the boy you're not really sure what's going on or yeah. are there is the ghost of Peter Quint and are the ghosts of Peter Quint and Miss Jessel terrorizing her as Devika seems to well, think well I think in a in the book like we you know there's some there's the, there's this difference between reading and then watching it like visually play out where there's a kind of a more objective implication in in a movie and so the reasons i felt like the movie was uh maybe weighing more towards the idea that they might be possessed in some way is because the kids actually do act weird and Flora, you know, th there's this creep, I thought a kind of a creepy implication that Flora knew that Miles was going to come home before anyone else knew. And even though it was an expel, you know, he was being expelled, which she couldn't have necessarily known. It does seem to be a, a psychological link between the siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Some some stuff that seems to escape the the rational explanation that they're just you know, they're just behaving maybe as slightly traumatized kids and that now she is projecting all of this onto them. But the movie kind of slips in, in and out of that subject, subjectivity and objectivity, I think, because especially in those moments where the sound design just comes to the fore, that like she's in the garden mm -hmm. and like she she opens up, she digs into the bushes and sees like a spider coming out of a, the mouth of a gnome or something, <laughs> like a statue. Yeah. And then the sound yeah. completely drops out and you see her look and she sees a vision of Peter Quint like in a tower and it's extremely frightening, but you're not sure if this is, you're not sure whether or not you're, ex you're even, so then you kind of, I, I began to question whether or not these earlier scenes that are presented as, you know, objective truth were in fact like colored by her experience. Right. Like we're actually kind of somewhat seeing things through her, yeah. through her eyes. Well, the, time. The, the very first shot of the film is the, of, of the governess to be Miss Giddens and her hands are clasped in prayer, and she's desperately, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an invocation of something where she's confessing that she just loves children uh, more than anything and doesn't want to fail them. And we don't know where that scene falls uh, in the narrative because it could be the next scene is of, of her meeting with the uncle and interviewing for the position. And we don't know whether that's a flashback or a flash forward, but it we're right away we're put on our guard about Miss Giddens because she's just too emphatic. Uh, and yeah, and then when, when she, yeah, um, her, her and, and the thing that she never loses, even when she's, you know, spiraling, uh, into these paranoid delusions about the kids, or are they, is her clarity of purpose. And that's where the casting of Deborah Carr is so genius because, you know, she, she, she'd spent a good part of her career playing caregivers, not so much mothers, but mother figures, uh, governesses, uh, teachers, mentors, leaders of flocks of all kinds um, in films as, as, as far flung as The King and I and The Chalk Garden, 
and even Black Narcissus. Um, even even in a fair to remember, she's you know at the end of the film after you know circumstances conspired to rob her of her love, she's leading a, a children's choir. So she's always surrounded by children, and she's like this rock of Gibraltar. She's very comforting and stable, you know, very refined and British. And she just has a manner about her that is a ballast to people who are in psychological distress. But here, from that very first scene, um, it, it, that's kind of inverted because we get the feeling she needs these kids more than they need her. And she's very uh, uh, schizoid toward them because one minute she's smothering them with affection and she's not meeting out discipline the way she should as their governess because she doesn't want them to dislike her. The next minute she's suspecting them of demonic possession and treating them accordingly and, and is, is determined to exercise whatever this visitation is and whatever you know, trauma that inflicts on the kids because she believes she's doing the right thing. And she never really wavers from that. She just doesn't really have a moment of self-doubt. She has this foil, this character of Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper, you know, who um, second guesses a lot of what she's doing, but she's indefatigable right up to the end. I mean, the one thing that I also wanted to pick up on that Steve really pointed out was that, you know, casting Deborah Carr is just incredible in part because she has this real innate like regality, like she's so like composed. And I think she really lamented um, later on in her career that she played all of these characters who were really stifled and repressed and that she didn't often get a chance um, to really express any kind of sensuality, but she was so good at it. She was just so good at playing these women who are just really sort of, you know, um, you know, what is the word that I'm looking for? Just sort of prim and, and really proper. And um, it's so interesting uh, that you point out her conviction, right? Especially in connection to Alice Sweet Alice, because I think what's significant about the innocence is that in her sort of rabid zealousness that she never, she doesn't really seem to doubt herself. And that is frightening. Whether or not the ghost exists or not is that on several occasions, she puts the children in real harm or really seems to frighten them because she's like, tell me you see her. I know you see her. You have to say that you see her. And the children keep denying it, but she won't allow them to have their own interiority. I mean, if we think, you know, actually what has happened is that, yeah, these children whether or not they do see the ghost, whether or not they've actually been touched by the ghost, they've experienced a kind of trauma, right? Because ultimately at the end of the day, their butler who was managing the house and then their government governess died really traumatically, unexpectedly, and possibly violently. I think And I like, think they found the bodies, right? They found the bodies. And right, so <laughs> right. plus they've they've lost their parents. They've lost uh, you know their their uncle wants nothing to do with them. So it's right. just them in this big drafty house with only the servants for company. Yeah, this is what always explained to me their strange behavior. Like, of course, these children are really weird. They don't have any structure. They don't really have anybody else. They're incredibly secluded and alienated. And they are, you know, however you slice it, unfortunately, because this is a text that's all about class, they are in this strange position of being children in need of care, but 
in in over or superior to everybody around them. Monsters of the house. Yes. Yeah. He's the master. Miles is referred mm. to as master. He's the man of the right. house. Man yeah. Of the house. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting when they're describing how Peter Quint dies before kind of we go more into Peter Quint's like relationship and with the kids and with Miss Jessel. There seems to be some kind of uncertainty about how he died because Miss Gross says, oh, he was found on the front steps with this wound on his head. He seemed shocked and Miles was the one who found him. And I wondered if there's almost, you know, the movie is introducing this like suggestion that maybe the kids pushed him or something, you know, had a role to play in his death, which is feasible if he was really this like person who was, I mean, if if they had a really traumatic, maybe even abusive relationship with him, it could, you know, there's there's ways in which you could be both very attached and and also, you know, try to fight back or lash out. I don't know. I just think that there are all these like little bits of quite fascinating uncertainty. This is what makes this movie like like truly frightening. And this one was <laughs> unlike Alice, Sweet Alice, which is was very interesting, but I didn't think was actually like scary. This movie like has moments where yeah. like I was actually terrified. Can I just say what the creepiest thing is in this kind of, uh, you know, is building on what you just said, Kelly, about class and this idea that they're they're the masters of the house. They're both so prim and well-spoken. I mean, Miles talks like an adult man. And I know that's kind of, that's why we have this uncertainty mm-hmm. of whether he's possessed. But then I'm also like, is this how really wealthy British children are? They're taught to dress and speak like this. And there's kind of this class horror aspect to it. Why are these kids being raised? I mean, partly because they're orphans in this very Mm. big house and with all this wealth. But like, why are they being raised to be so proper? And, you know, yeah, there's just something very unsettling. I do think we have to point out to that but whether or not Henry well obviously he intended this that part of the uh threat or danger of Peter Quint is that he is too ambitious like that like he is obviously Mm. abusive but he is also really a caricature of the lower classes who are like vulgar and deeply sexual and and don't have any restraint and then he comes to this place and really gets you know too big for his britches basically and sort Mm. of infects the house with his you know poverty his low class (laughs) contaminates that's the word she uses contaminate yeah yeah and I always I also thought about like the way Miss Gross says like they were using the bedrooms in daylight like dark woods and it's like oh no And it's so you have like even amongst you know because Mrs. Gross too is is obviously meant to be coded as lower class is this real you know um, anxiety. She's illiterate, right? She's yeah, she's just like a real anxiousness about like what traces this has left on the children. I also got the impression that Miles killed him. And it was just sort of unspoken. I mean, we don't have to mention the, I would say, very bad, most recent adaptation of Turn of the Screw, which is the Netflix um, show by Mike Flanagan, who I think has done better work, but it's The Haunting of Blind Manor. And in that series too, 
um, the child is deeply murderous. <laughs> so these children are sort of like never ever actually really um, innocent. And I think it's, you know, maybe we want now to sort of talk about how formally um, Jack Clayton, who I also love and I think is incredibly underrated, um, how he really establishes that particular, um, uh, this ambivalence, because like you're pointing out, Devika, you know, it's the way that they talk and, and the way that they move. But I was also really drawn to the the acting, I think when I first watched it years ago, I was kind of like, oh, these children are like giving me like very ugly vibes. Like I don't like it, it's deeply uncomfortable. But their performance I think is also really a testament to, um, you know, clearly the kind of space that both the novella and also Clayton is trying to create where, you know, you're creating a sense or a kind of, um, I hate to use the word again, but you know, a vibe so that you are able to interpret and really pour in your own conclusions because it, I was really fascinated by how my, you know, feeling like I had such great familiarity and, and possessiveness over this film and watching it, having not seen it in a long time and having just completely um, new interpretations of things that were going on. So there's like a real fear. And I think, um, you know, something that really sort of um, quite set me off was the way that the children are framed as they're just, they're so small, right? Even though Deborah Carr is obviously like, you know, she there's moments where she's so like uh, hysterical where she's getting like very violent with them. But I did want to maybe sort of use the segue to maybe talk about some of the stylistic choices if people, um, you know, had more to say about that. I guess I was just really drawn to that this time around. I don't know why it just struck me. Well, yes, very much so. Um, but I, I think it also starts with the screenplay, which is, is you know, the reason that, that such a plurality of interpretations is possible is because there, there was such a plurality of perspectives involved in this and, and melded together in this script. Um, it, of course, um, it began uh, with the text, which was then adapted into a play by William Alfred. Uh, Archibald in 1950, which was, uh, the, he, he also wrote the first draft of the screenplay, but Clayton felt that that was uh, too much of a straightforward ghost story. And so uh, having read some, um, some Freudian analyses of the James text, uh, he wanted to take it in that direction too. So he brought in Capote, who uh, was in the midst of writing In Cold Blood, which is maybe not irrelevant. Um, and, and so he took a few weeks off to, to, to write a new draft, which presents the conflicting possibility that Miss Giddens is uh, in the midst of, of, of psychological disintegration. And I think, I think it, both those perspectives are so well represented and Capote also brings to the table an almost preternatural understanding of childhood and the child, that the mentality of the child and the anxieties that children feel there's a line uh, that struck me this time. Um, Flora wants to share a room with Miss Giddens because she believes that in big houses, the rooms get bigger at night. And that's, that's the kind of thing that we all might feel when we're eight years old and then leave it behind. But Capote, you know, never did. He was just so plugged into, into the fears and preoccupations of children. And, you know, they're all over his memoirs. If you've ever read his, 
Christmas memory, Thanksgiving visitor. They're wonderful stories. And they're, but he's also very much in touch with the, uh, the arrested adult mentality. And that's, that's very much where Miss Giddens lives. She's at this juncture, um, or maybe we, we should say liminal space, where she can't quite be welcomed into the world of childhood shared by Miles and Flora. And she's almost resentful of that. She, she you know, as they, you know, whisper to each other and trade confidences, she feels excluded and, and embittered about it. And I think but, the character is supposed to be very young, but Deborah Kerr is. was, what, 40 at the time? She was 40, yeah. and I think she's supposed to be around 20. That's true. So but she, she averages out to about 30 in, in, my, in my eyes, in my <laughs> watching, in the movie. And she, doesn't, she seems far too old for to. So this adds another like kind of an uncanny uh, Yeah, but, but to, she's also excluded from the adult realm, too, because like she has... You know, she clearly has these licentious mm -hmm. urges, and she's clearly very charmed by the uncle, and even more so by what she learns about Peter Quint, which, you know, she, she pries it all out of Miss Gross, the housekeeper, in a manner of, you know, oh, you know, that's horrible. Tell me more. And, <laughs> you know, it's and, almost and, like um, a disrupted Jane Eyre, right? Exactly. Because she doesn't yeah. get to actually have the satisfaction of the sexual relationship with the master, the adult master of the house. She's right. just there with people who, like again, to bring it back to like the class analysis, with these children who are much younger than her, this woman who is much older than her, and these phantoms of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so she's an outsider in every realm. And, you know, and she, so she kind of lives in between childhood and adulthood and, you know, which kind of corresponds to the membrane between life and death, which she also seems to straddle. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I just, I find, and, and it's amazing to me for people who haven't seen the film, um, we don't even meet Peter Quint except through some very brief glimpses that may or may not be diegetically real. But, you know, we've, we've provided for you a complete uh, psychological dossier on a character just through things that are said about him and, and reconstructions of things that he, that he said and did. So that's, uh, that's a rare horror film that can give you that. I mean, yeah, and formally, I think I mentioned this earlier, but there's a lot of like pretty crazy sound design in this that's sort of unexpected and it really like messes with uh whose reality we're currently we're currently engaged in as we're watching the movie i think um yeah. and then i was also reading a little bit about this and originally i guess it was in cinemascope so and um the so i think when we watch it on I, I watched it on Amazon Prime. I'm I'm imagining that it's like panned and scanned quite a bit, and so I think we lose a little bit of the the house as a character. And um, from what I've read of the Cinemascope version, the house plays a large part in 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 creating this sense of other characters being involved. There's a lot of like stanchions and statues in the off to the side that frame the shots that get cropped Actually, in the That reminds me, there was one shot after she has seen uh Peter Quint and she the governess she's in 
I think she's like in this living room and she's talking to the children and there's a shot where you see the window behind her and there's like a skeletal figure in the window. Like a statue or something, right? Yeah, but it looks like a skeleton and yeah. I, and it, it may be like a reflection of a statue or something. But there were and but I thought that then she would turn and scream, but it's just a detail, you know? And I think that I'd love to I mean this was my first time watching it and I'd love to watch it again and like not look at the main characters and see and look at the backgrounds because I think there are probably these little kind of ambient creepy details that further blur, you know, the blur the question of whether this is a supernatural setting, whether we're in her head. Um, yeah, and I, I so I, I do think like, there's also like a density to the setting, the house, the plants, the garden, there's just a lot of detail. Yeah, yeah, and 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 rooms that are filled with things like uh, uh, music boxes and rocking horses and you know, everything Weird is clown dolls, marionettes. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, can I? Can, can we talk about the doll and Alice, sweet Alice, as well? The most terrifying doll. <laughs> yeah, I mean that doesn't even look like a doll. It just looks with multiple like a heads. ghoul. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's you know, in Alice's defense, they bring it to her at the hospital, and she's like, "This, I don't want this doll. Like, it's, yeah, this doll is scary." <laughs> she's real for that. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, when I watched these movies, I was like, "Ha! Huh, what goofy little horror retro <laughs> horror movies!" And now I feel like you guys have really kind of deepened them a lot for me. You know, thinking about Catholicism and class, and you know how children and parents are viewed, and I guess. This is why horror is, you know, so beloved. This is why we feature horror once a year on the, <laughs> on the Halloween Hangover podcast. But like this, how how much distance there can be between the text and the subtext, but also how little distance there can be. I mean, there, I think this conversation is really making me appreciate how you can just enjoy these movies on a wholly different level, a non-intellectual level, because a lot of these things are just like pl playing subconsciously on you and adding mm -hmm. to a kind of aesthetic and mood. And then, but you can also like literally, as Kelly, I'm sure you've done many times, write a very serious paper on, on these movies that are actually about the world and about history. But it's possible to enjoy both these movies in a way that's, really disengaged from that yeah. Mm. yeah i talk about this all the time i say it so much that i know it's like very irritating probably to people who <laughs> have to like deal with me on a daily basis but i am so you know i i've just been so have such an embittered feeling toward this latest revival of horror because i think there's so much telegraphing of you know it's politicized political political stances and it, there's just like this need to be so declarative when I think the scaffolding of horror sort of naturally lends to these kind of discussions because you're sort of always talking about a confrontation with the other and due to psychoanalysis we all know that like anytime you know you're you have that encounter it's so much more reflective than anything else and so you're ultimately you know asking people whenever you watch horror what I really love about horror is like you know just that 
real sort of visceral instinctive need to have this sort of catharsis this like feeling much like Miss Giddens who's just like no tell me more <laughs> I hate it but I need to know everything about it <laughs> and it's just like that real sort of emotional um feeling of you know being in a safe space whilst being asked to look in straight at things that are quite horrifying or terrifying and I just think that is you know it doesn't even need to have you know any sort of even though it all, almost always does any real social implications I think just in the sense of like you know I want to learn more about myself that horror can be really meaningful and productive that way like we're all very scared of like really strange kind of distinct things I mean there maybe there are things that are like quite general that you know we're mostly afraid of like collectively um like clowns apparently I don't get that but I'm saying like on a minor note we all have those really particular things that I think can be really fascinating to think about. So I always think of horror as anywhere like a really personal um, uh, excursion. I don't know if you feel the same way, Steve, or if I'm being pretentious. <laughs> about no, that's I, that brilliantly put. I couldn't have said it better. I think that's a, a great a great note to wrap up on. Unless we all want to reveal our most deeply held fears, but I don't think I'm really. I don't think the podcasters can really handle that. Snakes. Um, snakes. snakes. Yeah. Oh, really? That's it. Pretty basic, Steve. <laughs> well, that's me. <laughs> I would have ex expected something a little more salacious, Steve. Yeah. Well, we'll save those for after. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I will look forward to receiving pictures of your uh, costume, Kelly, and your dog. Steve, you must send us a picture of you and yeah. your dog. I will. That, I promise. that needs to be seen. Um, <laughs> and thank you so much. And uh, until next year. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's when we'll watch our next scary movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For Kelly, it's Halloween every day, so Yeah, maybe you guys yeah. maybe you can talk us yeah. into we can talk you yeah. can talk us into some more uh I want a year, petition maybe. for like a bi-monthly a Halloween <laughs> happy hour. <laughs> Kelly and Steve want a Halloween happy I hour. I think I think I can be I think I can go for that. I'm I found I was really I wasn't I mean I'm like creeped out. The innocence creeped me out and the shout creeped me out just because I think it's like kind of sleazy and there's like creepy <laughs> things. But yeah, overall. You keep saying this, Clint, and now I'm going to send you, if if we do this again, I'm going to send you You're something really gonna that scare is going to be really creepy. <laughs> yeah. The gloves come off. <laughs> I think next time you guys do have to up up the stakes. No, a no, bit no. For I us. think I no, no, no. We I don't think I think Clint's we like, no, no, good, no. I, I was good scared. horror movies. This is good though. The good horror movies, not just the scary ones. Like I uh, you're that. setting up a binary here that okay, I think. scary and good. Scary in a way that is. Uh, I don't know. I just don't. <laughs> I don't want to watch Human Centipede or something like that. <laughs> For God's sake, don't Why do this to me. The bar is like Alice Sweet Alice and Human Centipede. The <laughs> thinking man tour, Alice Sweet Alice. Let's wrap it up, but thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, this was a pleasure. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
visit us online at filmcomment.com.